in our series of sermons on the subject of the providence of God. We have considered the extent of God's providence. We've looked at several characteristics of that providence. And uh, then in recent weeks, we've been looking at the special care of God's providence, in other words, his church. And then last week, we looked at God's providence over the nations. And in that sermon last week, we began by stressing the absolute necessity of God's providence over the nations. Uh, It's absolutely necessary because great men are not always wise, and wise men are not always in power, and wise men are not always disinterested and patriotic. And then we went on to stress that wise nations acknowledge their dependence upon God's providence and that God's providence over all nations is a call to prayer. Well, this morning, our focus is going to be on the interpretation of God's providence. And this study will take us beyond uh, this hour. And uh, in fact, we're not even going to get uh, all the way through the outline that you have there in your bulletins. But... uh, We're going to begin, at least, and we'll see how far God takes us this morning. But before we look at this subject, let us pray for the help of Almighty God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you have been pleased to reveal unto us those things that others have not yet seen. And we do thank you that you've opened our eyes to see your power and your glory. And we bless you that even now we see your handiwork and your control in all things that are around us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand, to interpret what you were doing, and that we might govern our lives in accordance with that which you would teach us through that which we see in your word and that which we see all around us. Bless us now with the leading and the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Before we look at some scriptures concerning the subject of interpreting the providence of God in history. I want to just give you a little bit by way of background to this subject. Shortly after World War II, Dutch theologian G.C. Burkauer wrote a monumental book on the providence of God. And it's got a lot of aspects of the whole subject that we're not putting in this series. It's very technical in many points. But in the very first chapter of this work, he addressed what he called the crisis of the providence doctrine in our century. And mind you, this is written, I think it was in 1952. And in the first half of the 20th century, the world had been engulfed in two great global wars of incalculable destruction. And during most of the second half of that century, beyond the writing of this book, The world lived under the ominous threat of nuclear war that threatened to wipe out all civilization. And with these awful realities in view, how was one to make sense of life? And the optimism, therefore, of the 18th and 19th centuries that man can do everything, this optimism had given way to the hard and ruthless realism of the 20th century. Now, for Christians, the crisis that was posed by these horrific realities, it resided in the meaning of God to a shattered world. And the question that was posed is, does the church then have the right to preach a living God in the midst of this senseless world? If there is a God that's running things, this doesn't look like it. It seemed like he'd have it a little bit straightened out a little bit better. And the only philosophy, therefore, that seemed realistic in this kind of a senseless world 
was the philosophy of nihilism. Nihilism is the rejection of all moral and religious principles in the belief that life is meaningless. People were beginning to wonder if their situation in the world was clear proof that at least in the present darkness there is no perspective that makes sense. And to many people, therefore, atheism seemed to be the only logical conclusion to be drawn from their existential circumstances. And therefore, many thinkers, they threw the concept of God's rule over all things into what they believed was the garbage bin of bad ideas. And in this context, two motifs or two themes gain much ground in the thinking of people in America and around the world. The first of these two themes or motifs is the scientific motif. And according to this view, the hypothesis, I put that in quotes, the hypothesis of God's providential rule, this was just a primitive pre-scientific view. And it had to give way to what we now see to be the reality that exists. And that reality is the only, the only reality that is, is that which can be discovered by scientists. Everything that exists has a scientifically discoverable cause or explanation. Ideas like God, ideas like religion, they are nothing. And then in addition to the scientific motif was the projection motif. And this is the idea that religion is just a projection of the human mind. And this was the approach that was taken by Marx and Nietzsche, Furbach and Freud. Karl Marx, he described religion as a chimera created by man to make life bearable. And oppressed, therefore, by all the miserable realities that were around him, man created all kinds of religious illusions, as he called them, whereby he could escape misery. And the idea, therefore, of God's providence, this was thought to be just an imagination to make people feel a little better about what's going on. Freud, one of these other thinkers, he wrote this. We tell ourselves that it is very beautiful indeed that there is a God, creator of the world, a kind providence, a moral order, and a life hereafter. But it is very striking that all this is exactly as we wish for ourselves. You see, it's just, just a wish that we have a God, that we have providence. So religion is nothing more than the psychic creation of man in his distress. And these two motifs, the scientific motif and the projection motif, these ideas still dominate millions of the people in our land. The only reality for such thinkers that exists is that which can be discovered by science, and religion is just the projection of man in his distress. And to many people, therefore, what we have been witnessing lately, it confirms these dark conclusions. Conservatives... They're infuriated as they watch videos labeled this way. Man stomped and stoned for trying to defend a bar from being looted. Destroying store and beating unarmed woman and her husband. Restaurant manager beaten and stomped for trying to defend his workplace. These are just the captions of the videos. Looting in Union Square, New York City. St. Louis neighborhood on fire. Pharmacy destroyed and looted in Dallas. Destroying Justice Center in Portland. And at the same time, there's been another set of videos that have been passed around. And these infuriate the liberals especially. Cops push a protester to the ground. His head slams on concrete. Protester walking home when police tackle and beat him. Protester badly injured as a cop bashes his head in with a shield. Police attack peaceful protesters. 
Well, these dueling videos, along with similar dueling newspaper and website articles, many conclude as they see all these things that it just doesn't make any sense. The idea that there's a sovereign God controlling all of this, this is a preposterous idea. This crisis is what promised me to speak to you this morning concerning the interpretation of God's providence in history. And as we address this subject, we're going to arrange our thoughts under several heads, uh, three of which I hope to cover. Actually, we'll only cover two. We'll just dip in, hopefully, into the third and then pick it up in our next sermon from that point on. But in the first place, I want you to consider with me the relationship of providence and history. And the way that we interpret providence, it will determine the way we evaluate history, especially church history. And this is so because providence and history are really the same thing, just looked at from two different sides of points of view. Both providence and history, they are terms that refer to the results of God's eternal purpose or decree being unfolded in the world. Providence has been aptly described or defined as the is history as God has ordained it and watches over it. And because this is the case, one can't truly understand history if he doesn't have a correct view of God's providence. And such a writer or such a thinker might be correct in many details about history. He might have rightfully earned great respect for his erudition. He might have all these Latin and Greek and German and all these quotes in his footnotes of his very learned book that he's written. He might have all of that, you see. And yet, being authority about these details doesn't automatically enable a researcher to understand the overall significance of what he's writing about. One of the most striking examples of this is Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. This is... A massive work. I think it's six volumes in the set that I have. And it's justly regarded as a historical masterpiece. But as an overall explanation of the fall of Rome, it's extremely disappointing. Edward Gibbon attributes the fall of Rome, of all things, to its abandonment of paganism and to its conversion to Christianity. He was simply regurgitating, you see, the old pagan view that had been refuted a long time ago by Augustine in the 22 books of his great work, The City of God. And the pagan view had virtually disappeared until Gibbon revived it again in 18th century England. In Gibbon's history, it's a classic case of an enduring work of history that's marved by a false view of providence. Now, as we seek to work out the relationship between providence and history, allow me for a few minutes to highlight this relationship by means of three points. And if you happen to print them out, they are there in your outlines. And the first of these subpoints is this. First of all, I want to point out the two sides of history. And these two sides are the divine and the human. On the divine side, history is the revelation of God's eternal plan. It's the successive unfolding of a plan that was devised with infinite wisdom and holiness and mercy. A plan is the unfolding of that plan all with a view to glorifying God and all with a view to the eternal happiness of his people. 
So that's the divine side. And on the part of man, history is the account of the words and the deeds of the human race in its natural and social and political environment. On one hand, you see, as we're looking at these two sides of history, on one hand, history is something of a biography of mankind that's been constructed, you see, much like a biography. A biographer will go to letters that were written to find out what happened, maybe eyewitness accounts, other things that can help him to, to write the biography of a particular person. And on the other hand, it's incomplete, you see, without the recognition of the divine hand that guides everything behind it. In any incident, the divine and the human are two sides of the same event. As G.C. Burkauer puts it, God's rule is executed and manifested in and through human activity. You see what it is. It's God's rule, and yet he works through human activity. There are not two powers working apart and parallel to each other, the divine and the human, each limiting the other. It's not that there are two opposing forces. They work together. God works with men to accomplish, you see, his purpose. Now, last week we read the account of King Rehoboam's folly. Remember how he rejected the wise counsel of the older men and he followed the foolish counsel of the younger men. And when Jeroboam and the northern tribes came to him, asking him to lighten their burden, while the older men urged Rehoboam to answer them graciously, the younger men had the opposite advice. This is what you should say to, the, to him. This is what you should say to these people that are asking you to be merciful. My little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So then when they came back and Rehoboam answered the northern tribes according to the counsel of the young men, this rough way, they rebelled. And when Rehoboam then went forth with his army to subdue them, the prophet Shemaiah was sent by the Lord, and this is what he said to him. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren. And then he gives the reason. For this thing is of me. You see, Rehoboam could only see the external. He could see, well, a bunch of people, they, they rebelled against me. Rebellion's got to be stamped out. I got to go deal with this. That's, that's the human level. That's what he could see from just looking at it as, as a man would look at it. But the Lord said, I've been planning this a while. Your father disobeyed me. He worshiped idols. I told him I was going to judge his family and his kingdom. And so therefore, part of the kingdom, you see, was going to be taken away and given to a man named Jeroboam. So the divine side was God's purpose to fulfill this prophecy made years ago to Jeroboam, but the human side was just what Rehoboam and the others could see by way of this rebellion. Let me have you turn with me now to Judges chapter 9. Here we have a very interesting example of the same principle, the twofold side of the two sides of history. In Judges chapters 6 through 8, we're going to look at chapter 9 in a moment. But in those two preceding, or those three preceding chapters, we have the account of the way that God raised up Gideon to subdue the Midianites. And these uh, Midianites had oppressed them for, for seven years. And this was because of Israel's rebellion, his idolatry. 
And in those chapters, we are told that Gideon had 70 sons because he had a lot of wives. And we also read that after he died, the Israelites again played the harlot with false gods. And they made Baal Berith their god. And to make it worse, one of Gideon's sons, one of these 70 sons named Abimelech, he killed all but one of 69 brothers. He would have gotten the other one, but he just didn't find him. And he made himself the ruler over the city of Shechem and its environs. And this is what we read in verses 22 through 24 of Judges chapter 9. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And why did this happen? That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. And on the men of Shechem, in other words, that they too would suffer because of this, who had aided him in killing of his brothers. So what do we read here? We read here that these things took place, this rebellion on the part of Abimelech and the rebellion of Shechem, and going along with Abimelech, all of this was part of a judgment that took place according to the purpose of God. And then in the rest of this chapter, we have an account of the battle that took place between the men of Shechem that, that now Abimelech was over, and those that sided with, so no, excuse me, it was from the men of Shechem, a battle against those that still sided with Abimelech. You see, God had put it at ill will between them. He had stirred one side up against another. And so there's this battle between these two forces. And in the account that we read as we go on this battle, in this battle, a thousand men and women from Shechem that took refuge in a big tower. But they were all burned to death in this tower. Abimelech started the whole thing on fire and they died. And then also we read, according to this account, that a woman from Shechem took refuge in a different tower and in another city, and as Abimelech was besieging that city, she dropped a millstone on his head, and he died. Well, the human side of this whole saga is involved in the ill will, you see, of the men of Shechem against Abimelech. They turned against him, even though they had made him king at one point. It's their ill will that, that turned against him. And also the human side involves their treachery in turning against him. But the, verse 23 tells us that there was also a divine side to this event. It was, we read in that verse, God who sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And this was in order that Abimelech's crime of murdering his brothers might be punished. And the men of Shechem, they were not motivated by a righteous desire to do God's will. They themselves were guilty of treachery. And all along they were guilty, and yet they were the instruments of God in this great event. And then notice what we read at the end of this whole account in verses 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Zerubbabel. 
So we see very plainly here the human side, but also the divine side of that whole story. We won't take the time to go through all the details, but perhaps you can turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. And here we have the account of the life of Joseph as he looks back upon it. And this, this also, it illustrates the two-sidedness of history. The human side, it includes the plan of Joseph's brothers to kill him. It includes Reuben's rescue of Joseph, the sale of Joseph into the hands of the Midianites, of who were slave traders, and how they take him down to Egypt. And he's there in Egypt and goes through all kinds of trials there in Egypt. But there's a, there's, a, there's a little statement that occurs twice in Genesis chapter 39. And I'm always struck, as every time I come through this passage in my consecutive reading of the Bible, I always am struck by this little phrase, and it's just simply this, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. And obviously this means that the Lord blessed Joseph. And uh, this is in Genesis 39, verses 2 and 21. And all of these events, they took place in order that eventually Joseph might become prime minister of Egypt and thereby be the instrument of saving his own family from famine. And the activity of God, it didn't take place, you see, with some kind of outward supernatural, uh, some outward supernatural way. All of a sudden, you see some kind of an angel swooping down and lifting him up and setting him on a throne and magically putting a throne on his head and making Pharaoh bow down. And all. Not, it didn't happen in that kind of a fantastic way. It all took place in a way that appeared to be just something that happened by way of the human instruments acting one after another in the whole account, the whole story. And the activity of God, it didn't play, take place, therefore, in a way that appeared to be unusual. But it was in the activity of his brothers and of others. And what they did was evil. But God's providence was at work, even in the midst of their jealous, malicious activity. And Joseph could see both sides to his own history. And therefore, in Genesis 50, he says to his brothers, they were afraid that now that their father had died, that Joseph would retaliate. He said, do not be afraid, for I am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Above all, this divine human dimension of providence was revealed in the death of our Savior. In a mysterious manner, God was at work. He was directing the acts of sinful men, all with a view to securing our salvation. On the horizontal level, we see the plotting of the religious leaders. We see Judas's treachery, the cry of the Jewish multitude for Jesus' crucifixion. And we see Pilate's sentence. We see the execution taking place. That's what we see on the human level. But in Acts 2.23, speaking about Jesus, Peter tells the multitude, him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. This all happened, he said, by God's purpose, but you did it. Human and divine, both at work in the same event. In Acts 3.15, he says to them, you killed the prince of life. And yet in the next chapter, we read that they did this in fulfillment of God's predetermined purpose. And so we see here this two sides of history, the divine and the human. 
And now still under this main heading of providence in history, I want you to notice with me in the second place the twofold alternative of history. And the two alternatives are either blessing or judgment. And here I want you to turn with me please to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 28. In this chapter, as the Israelites were about to go into the land of promise, Moses preaches a long sermon to them. It's his last great sermon to Israel. It's a moving sermon to read. And he tells them, he sets before them blessings that would be theirs if they obeyed God's voice. And notice how he describes those blessings here in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Actually, uh, yeah, here, yeah, I'm in the right place. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning with verse 3. He says, Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And the result would be that they would be a holy people unto the Lord, and all the people of the nations of the world would see that they are called by God's name. Verses 9 and 10. So that's the blessing. But if they refused to obey God, they would be cursed. And so we read in verse 16, Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Then verse 22, he says, The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning and fever, the sword, and scorching, and with mildew. And they shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over you shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. And furthermore, he goes on to say, if you keep on rebelling, it's going to, the, the punishment's going to get worse. And ultimately, it'll be that you will be besieged by your enemies, And he says in verses 53 and verse 55, he says, you're going to even eat your own children. It's going to be so awful, the distress that you're going to be in. Well, in Leviticus chapter 26, the alternative blessing and cursing again, and that chapter is also set forth. We're not going to take the time to read that chapter or even portions of it. Well, in this world, divine retribution is imperfectly carried out. And that's because the final retribution, the final payment for sin, it awaits the second coming of Christ. And especially with respect to individuals who suffer, this reminds us and this warns us against jumping to the conclusion that a particular suffering is coming upon a particular person because that person was especially wicked or did something really bad. And therefore, because of that particular bad deed, this particular suffering is being given to that person. And we know that this is not the case because misery has come upon the whole human race because of the fall. And some suffering is for other purposes besides punishment. It's to sanctify us, to give us, to test our faith. Uh, Job's suffering was not due to particular sin. 
And we know that because the very beginning of this book tells us plainly that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You remember how in John chapter 9, Jesus makes it plain that the man born blind was not born blind on account of any sin that he did or on account of any sin that his parents had done. Now some suffering is experienced by God for the sake of refining and purifying them. Others it strengthens and it demonstrates their faith. So if somebody you know dies of the coronavirus, you must not assume that that person must have done something really bad. That's the reason why that person has died of the virus, and you didn't die, at least not yet. And the most loving, spirit-filled Christian whose sins are forgiven in Christ may die of COVID-19, and have. There's some of them have. And so we don't conclude that individual sins are being punished This isn't the thing we should jump to the conclusion if somebody goes through suffering or through even death. Well, in some cases, God makes, though, a particular example of an especially wicked person. So there are some instances in which it is true. In Acts chapter 12, Herod the king exalted himself. He allowed himself to be called God by the people listening to his oration. And we read immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And so there are those peculiar types in which God makes an example of a person. But there are many wicked people that die peacefully in old age. But there's a difference between individuals and nations. And with respect to individual unbelievers, it's not until the hereafter, you see, that their sins are fully judged. Of course, with believers, their sins were judged on Jesus long ago. But nations, you see, they exist here only. There isn't going to be any such thing as the American nation in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the United States of America, that's not going to exist in the new heavens and in the new earth. And it's not going to be, you see, any United States of America in hell either. It just won't exist, you see, in the next life. And so, whatever rewards or punishments that nations are to receive, they must take place in this present age. Now, certain sins are very national in their their orientation. They prevail among the people. I think in our society, such things as sexual promiscuity, idolatrous covetousness, the oppression of the poor, stealing, swearing, these are the kinds of sins that have become very much part of our nation. And other sins become national sins, not because they spread everywhere, but they are sanctioned by national authority. In America, we have a representative government. And when our legislatures pass unrighteous laws, they do this in behalf of the people that voted for them. They made promises to people to do things, and many of them are promises to do wicked things. And the people that voted for them are then rewarded by that that person, that leader, uh, doing what they'd asked. And when they pass unrighteous laws, therefore, uh, the, the people participate in those unrighteous laws. Presidents, they also carry out an agenda that they promised they would carry out. At least they try to. Some of them do. And if they do this, if that agenda is evil, their actions represent the evil will of the people. And even the decisions of the Supreme Court justices, even though they're not elected, they're appointed, you see, by the president, and you appoint a president, you elect a president, because you think he's going to appoint a certain type of judge. And so even the decisions 
of the Supreme Court that are in favor of evil, they become national sins. The legalization of abortion in 1973 and its subsequent confirmation at various Supreme Court rulings, this is a national sin. It's not only national sin because it's everywhere, but also because it's by law something that's allowed and sanctioned. The Bible makes it very clear that nothing is more offensive, though, than the rejection of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's even worse than killing babies. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come to you. Then listen to this. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the, for in that day for Sodom than for that city. Where is the most severe denunciations of Jesus? Who are they upon? They're on religious hypocrites that rejected him. You remember, he does that in Matthew 23. But also on these ones that reject the gospel message that the disciples came to preach in their towns. As Gardner Spring wrote in one of his books, the character of nations and men is decided by the gospel. As they fall in with it or fall out with it, they are saved or lost. The most serious crime being committed by our nation is the rejection of the gospel. It is God's sovereign kindness that the gospel has been proclaimed now in this land for 400 years. 400 years ago, the pilgrims landed on our shores. And I ask, what nations have ever been so flooded with gospel preaching that England and America? And the more this nation rejects God's word, God's gospel, along with its glad tidings of salvation, the more it cries out for judgment. William Plumer writes this, In every land, some refuse the yoke of Christ. But when the hostility is bold and aversion rises to the point of malignity, and opposition builds up adverse systems, and all this with a clear light shining, a nation has reached an appalling crisis. So it is, so it was with the Jews. Paul and Barnabas said to them, Seeing you put it from you, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we turn to the Gentiles. Sometimes this rejection of the gospel is accompanied by anti-Christian legislation. And such was the case when the Jewish rulers decreed that if anybody would confess Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And sometimes opposition to the gospel it escalates to the point of persecution. And more and more, we're seeing this happen on our university campuses and in the cancel culture of our day. People that want to confess Christ or say something biblical, they're canceled. They lose their jobs. They lose their their ability to be in a class or to get a certain degree. And obviously this is not like Christians being killed as in other places, but still it's an effort that is representative of the hostility of the world against the gospel. And while we can't in every case declare with certainty that a certain nation is being judged for its sins, when a great calamity comes upon us, dear people, it's right that we begin to ask why that calamity has come upon us. 
Amos 3, 6 says, if a trumpet blows in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Whatever the calamity is, God had done it. God had sent that calamity to that city. Now they ought to think about it. They ought to repent. That's the message of Amos. Now as we've been looking at the relationship between providence and history, we've noted the two sides of history, divine and human. We've noted the twofold alternatives of history, blessing and judgment. But now I want you to notice with me thirdly the central theme of history. The central theme throughout all the millennia of this world's existence is the kingdom of God established by Christ. And because I've already preached several sermons on the special care of God's providence of the being the church, I don't need to dwell upon this point. But I want to just repeat for the sake of emphasis once again that the death and the resurrection of Christ, this comprises the grand focal point of history. Everything leading up to it was anticipating it. Everything since that event looks back to it. And the kingdom that was secured by the death and resurrection of Christ, this is the grandest, this is the most comprehensive institution in the world. In the purposes of God and in the outworking of these purposes, all other institutions are made subservient in God's plan to his kingdom. Nations are less of account to him than his kingdom on earth. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, and is greater than the, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven that spread, that Jesus then immediately tells in that same chapter, Matthew 13, this teaches us about how Christianity spreads through the whole world, it penetrates, it transforms, and it sanctifies individuals, and in ever-widening circles, it impacts society. Well, this is the central story, you see, of history. It pertains to the manner in which God providentially causes the gospel to spread far and wide throughout the world. It is that which brings a joyful message to people that receive it and submit themselves to Christ. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says the key to the history of the world is the kingdom of God. Well, this is all what I wanted to say under our first major heading as we seek to sketch out the relationship between providence and history. But now I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. And here we want to look at some contrasting interpretations of providence and of history. 1 Kings chapter 18. The verses that we're about to read, they're especially significant for this subject. In chapter 16, a couple chapters earlier, verse 30, we read that King Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And because of his idolatry, because of his marriage to wicked Jezebel, God sent the prophet Elijah to him. Elijah came to this wicked king. He declared, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. 
chapter 17 and verse 1. And then, over three years later, after the famine had devastated the land for three years, Elijah shows up again at Ahab's court. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 and 18, we read about the conversation that took place when they, their eyes locked with one another once again after three years. What does he say? What does Ahab say? What does Elijah say? Well, interestingly, each man blamed the other for the trouble that had come to the, to the land. And they did so for exactly opposite reasons. Notice what we read in, in this chapter, chapter 18, verses 17 and 18. And he answered, excuse me, verse 17, And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you? O troubler of Israel? And he, that is Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel unto me on Mount Carmel. And then he speaks about how he's going to demonstrate who is the true servant of the Lord. Well, Ahab's point of view was that Elijah was the one that messed everything up. It was Elijah that interrupted the prosperity and all the happiness of the land. He's the one that, he prayed down God's judgment upon the land. Elijah did something awful to the land. That was Ahab's view. And Elijah's view was that it was Ahab's idolatry that was the real cause of the trouble on the land. You see, to worldly men, to worldly women... It's uptight Christians, you see, uptight Christians that tell them to get rid of the inconvenient result of their, that, that getting rid of the inconvenient result of their promiscuity and killing their babies. It, it, it's uptight Christians that tell them that this is not something they should do. And it's uptight Christians that, that stand in front of the abortion clinics. They're the ones that make us all feel uncomfortable. They're the ones, you see, that are the disturbers of the peace, the troublers of Israel. How dare they tell me what I can do and what I can't do with my body? But to those, and so the, to those that reject the Bible, it, it's pure bigotry and hate when Christians tell them who it is that they can love and get married to. That's, that's bigotry, that's hate. But you see, to the man of God, it's reckless, defiant sinners that are ruining the country by bringing God's curse upon the land by their sins. That's our assessment. In Ahab's thinking, Israel was his kingdom. And Elijah brought nothing but trouble to his kingdom. But in Elijah's judgment, Israel was God's kingdom. And Ahab was the chief cause of misery that the whole nation was experiencing. You are the troubler of Israel, he says. And the exchange between these two men, it was a noticeable example of two opposing interpretations of providence. And here I want to just make a couple observations. The first is that a man's theology determines his view of providence. What we think of God, what we think of his word, this must determine our interpretation of everything that we see around us. And in our present crisis as a nation, it leads us to want whatever police reform is just and right. We want that. But on the other hand, it determines whether or not 
We think that, see, our, whether we think biblically, it determines whether or not we think that rioting and pelting police with bricks and burning down buildings, is this is the good way to, to, to reach, achieve racial justice. And it leads us to petition. It leads us to pray for the defeat of efforts to silence free speech or to reverse any measures that require believers to violate their consciences. Who are the real troublers of Israel in this land? Is it that Christian baker that said it violated his conscience to bake a cake? That sent the message that homosexual marriage is, is a God-ordained institution? Acceptable in God's eyes? Is that man the trouble of our nation? Are the troublers of our nation those that refuse to lay aside critical doctrinal differences that they might supposedly show everybody that they have love for everybody in Jesus? But they can't violate their consciences, you see, which are captive to God's word. Are they the ones that are troublers? Are they the, is it the college professors, you see, that present an alternative view to evolution? Are they the ones that are messing everything up in the colleges? To those that reject scripture, these are the ones that are bringing trouble on the land. But evangelical and reformed believers, they diagnose the cause of the ills of the church and the land as the judgment of God upon theological unfaithfulness and blatant departure from scripture. And this principle that a man's theology, it affects his view of providence, this holds true in reverse form. The way that a man interprets providence, it proves what his real theology is. Morris Roberts, in a wonderful essay on this theme, he illustrates this by pointing to a book published around the time of his writing, a book that was entitled Defending the Faith. And he's a, he's a man from Scotland, and so this is the environment in which he's writing. He says, from the title of this book, you would expect to find the orthodox doctrines of Scripture being set forth and defended. It's called Defending the Faith. That's the name of the book. The author looks at the life and thinking through eight well-known Scottish theologians and preachers. And the book provides a valuable summary for, for some men, summary of the life and the teaching of Kennedy of Dingwall and John Caird and A.B. Bruce and James Denny. But what's surprising in this book is the manner in which the author admires and praises John MacLeod Campbell and Thomas Erskine of, of Lilothan and Edward Irving. And yet, this book that's supposedly promoting great defenders of the faith is defending and promoting three men disciplined by their churches because of heresy. So what was being called, you see, the church's remedy, the way to defend the faith, the way it was being promoted here, in, in better days, this, was being, this would have been called heresy. And so you see, this illustrates the truth that a way a man interprets providence proves his real theology. And as we continue to think about these contrasting interpretation of providence, let me just make a, another observation, a second observation. The Bible warns against making false diagnoses of providence. All too often when a church suffers decline, the leaders conclude that they need to be more inclusive. They've got to loosen up a little bit. Or they don't need, they, they've got to quit being so narrow. They've got to just kind of widen the gates of the, of the church. We've got to kind of change our doctrinal stands so that more people can sign their name. We've got to change our ecclesiastical standards to fit the desires of more people. 
And therefore, instead of addressing the real cause of the deadness and the decline of the church, the spiritual decline of the church has accelerated even further. And here I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah prophesied during the last years before Jerusalem was captured and Judah was dragged off to the captivity of Babylon. And in the face of great opposition, he continued to warn Judah of the disaster that was about to come to him. And one of the hardest, I don't know if anybody had a harder ministry than Jeremiah. Anytime I start feeling sorry for myself, I just need to read the book of Jeremiah, and it gets all over with real quick. And it, it, it constantly he has those that are supposedly the prophets of God opposing his preaching. And he's preaching the, the real word of God. And one of the things that they do is they oppose him and his calling for repentance and his warnings of God's wrath. And here in Jeremiah 23, verses 16 and 17, we read of these false prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, No evil shall come upon you. You see, they're about to be judged because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness in many other ways. And these false prophets were saying, it's all right. This this old crank Jeremiah, he's just getting everybody all nervous here about the situation. He's just making you all negative in your thoughts. And you should be more positive and we'd be stronger, you see, to fight back against our enemies. And surely we will prevail eventually. And so in this way, you see, they falsely interpreted providence. And they gave their false diagnosis. And these false prophets, uh, they're like peddlers of a false gospel today. And they prophesy smooth things. And they, they tell their hearers what their hearers want to hear, not what they need to hear. And they put themselves forward as ministers that are more loving and more tolerant than those that are thumping away with their Bibles. And to those that are living in blatant sexual sin, they say that God is so loving he wouldn't condemn you for what you're doing. He sees that you love that woman and therefore he wouldn't condemn you for that. And for those that walk according to the dictates of their own hearts, they say, you shall have peace. That's what these prophets said. It's all going to go well. And they say that whatever troubles have come upon the church and whatever troubles are on the land... All these troubles, they've come from these, these, these un- intolerant people. People that are less loving and tolerant than we are. And unlike the narrow-minded people that insist on keeping God's word, they say to people living in disobedience, God accepts us just the way we are. It's, it's, you see, these people don't understand that we have matured. We are more enlightened now in the 21st century. We're not living back in the Middle Ages. And God, God thinks differently now, you see, because we think differently. And it's these fundamentalist Bible-thumping bigots. These are the ones that are making it miserable for everybody. 
That's the kind of thing we see in our day, duplicating Jeremiah 23. And now turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44 and verse 18 and following. Or verse 15 and following, sorry. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, they answered Jeremiah saying, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven. This was an idolatrous idol they were worshiping. To burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out our drink offerings to her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And notice how they interpret providence. For then, that is when we were burning incense to this idol, we had plenty of food, were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Moreover, we read in verse 24, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, and you who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. All Judah, who dwell in the land of Egypt, behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who were in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. You see here the Opposite interpretations. Everything went well for us when we were worshiping these idols. Jeremiah says, that's not true. You keep worshiping those idols, and you're going to think it was a picnic, what you had in the past when you had those troubles, because God is going to bring severe judgment upon you. And we live in a generation, dear people, in which preachers fill large audiences and even great arenas with people that love to hear smooth things. They love to hear that God wants them all wealthy and healthy and successful. And if only they believe in themselves. If only they had more of a positive outlook, they would achieve wonders. They love that kind of a sermon. They love hearing preachers that never tell them about sin or repentance. We also live in a society that believes that life has no meaning. Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, he says, We are born by accident. We live our lives without purpose and we die without, by chance. And this is a depressing interpretation of history. It is no wonder some people, they want to replace that dark message with something that, that bypasses ever mentioning sin or repentance. But the preaching of Jesus again and again was on the theme of repentance. And when he sent his disciples out into the world, Luke chapter 24, he told them to preach repentance in his name. Christ preaching himself searched the spiritual depths of the sinful hearts of his hearers. And he called for genuine faith and genuine repentance. And so I trust you can see 
The Bible warns against making a false diagnosis of providence. And especially it warns preachers against doing just that. But we're not going to have time really to develop in any way our third point, the duty of interpreting providence, the history. I just want to say before we close with a word of application that it's our duty to understand these things. It's our duty to act in accordance with God's word, understanding what's going on around us. At first sight, it might not seem like an important thing how you interpret the events of the past or how you interpret what's going on today. But no one that takes the Christian faith seriously should adopt the attitude of indifference about the meaning of God's providence in the present era. It's the duty of God's church to set the light of his word on what's going on. And if we're to understand his workings in the present era, we need to understand the past. And Jesus said, Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And we ought to be able to discern the signs, the evidences of what's going on in our times. But we'll come back to that theme and how it's important for us to some degree, especially for those that are leaders, to have a knowledge of what's going on in order that there might be a proper interpretation of the providence of God in our own time. But before we close, I want to say by way of application, we're going to skip the first, first point that's there in your notes. What I want to say here is that when we've rightfully interpreted our present circumstances and God's, of God's providence, let us learn to look to God, not to man, to rescue us and preserve us. All too often, politicians, they're blinded by their desire to use a crisis for their own advantage. You know how some politicians say, don't waste a crisis. And the media are quick to join the groupthink that surrounds these politicians. And everybody agrees, of course, that what happened to George Floyd was horrific. But people inside and outside of the mainstream, they disagree over what, there were now to, what we're now to do about all that. And celebrities and columnists and all these talking heads, they rush to the fight with their diagnoses, with their prescriptions. This happened because of systemic racism, because of corporatism, because of inequality, and, and they, down they go, their, their, their political list. And they say, why should any of us all get worked up about a looted Gucci store when the richest 1% you see own half the world's, half the world's wealth? Another one says, years of peaceful protest. This hasn't changed anything. It's time for rage. Time to burn everything down. Well, Janie Cheney, she was right, I think, when she wrote this, observing in World Magazine. At every flashpoint, generalizations bloom like a cloud of smoke. We're choking on them. Yes, inequity, racism, and corruption are the problem. But these are endemic to a fallen world. They can't be fixed by policy, only moderated over time. And when general sins find individual expression, they must be dealt with individually. So what's our whole point? Our nation will never truly find deliverance from the evils that are ripping it apart until one by one the people of this nation repent of their sin and get right with God. It's not going to be changed by some new law by some new legislation, by some new, new standard of, of training police or whatever it might be that's proposed. Those things might be good and well, but the real f- 
turnaround for this country will not happen without repentance for sin. And it's not nations, generally speaking, that in a corporate way that repent, but individuals, one by one, as they hear the gospel, as they hear the word of God. Our root problem is our departure from God. That's the root problem of our country. And when our COVID numbers went down, our government said God didn't do it, we did it. We've departed from God, you see in our thinking. And when some of our party activists were caught on tape this past week saying the Pledge of Allegiance and deliberately leaving out the words under God from the phrase one nation under God, this indicates the thinking you see. It's a departure from God. Increasingly, we've become a nation that's epitomized by Paul's description of the heathen as he writes to the Ephesians, you were without God in the world. We are becoming a nation without God. That's the root problem. An anecdote is told of a farmer that was very proud of a fine field growing oats. And somebody remarked, this is a fine field of oats. The farmer said, yes, if God Almighty lets it alone, it'll be a bumper crop. And so as the story goes, the crop immediately stopped growing. God withdrew the forces that made it a luxuriant crop and it withered and it died. And so he did just exactly what that farmer said. If God lets it go, it's going to be wonderful. So God let it go. And the crop dried up, withered and died. And so something like this, this will happen to our beloved nation unless there is a return to God, unless there's a dependence upon God, and unless we ourselves as a church take a lead in repenting of our sins and getting right with God and seeking God's face, depending upon him, not upon electing this person or that person, for the, for the salvation of our nation. Far too many, you see, think that we can get along better without God than with him. And so God and the Bible and the church and religion, they're left in the trash heap. But if God leaves us alone, just like those oats, we'll all perish. So may the Lord use this to drive this lesson home to our hearts that of all people on the face of, these, of, this, of this great land in which we live, you and I ought to be those people that turn to God in these days with renewed intensity, with renewed determination to forsake our sins, to be right with him, and to be instruments of God's hands of telling others about the only remedy for this nation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did upon the cross of Calvary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you have indeed given us the great remedy for the evils of mankind. And we pray that you would help us to understand the times, that we would be like the men of Issachar that understood the times. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us concerning how you view things and how, according to your word, we should respond to what is taking place around us. Help us to be informed about what is going on and yet not be consumed by all of that which we hear with our ears and see with our eyes. Above all, we pray, Lord, that even though we need to know what's going on, that above all we would know you, that we would spend time with you and spend time in your word, spend time seeking your face in prayer. We pray, Lord, that as we see these evils that have descended upon our land during these past months, that our prayer meetings would be times of great renewal for this church, 
that we would be more intensified in our cries unto you to deliver us from our sins. For we have sinned just like this nation has sinned. We participate in its sin. It's our representatives that have sinned and we put them in place. And it's our sins that still are part of the whole rottenness that is beginning more and more to manifest itself in our land. Have mercy upon us, we do pray. Turn us, we pray, and we will be turned. We pray all these things in the precious name of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.